I don't know about you, but the last, the last three years, I've regularly been thinking, is this really happening? And it keeps happening to me. You know, first of all, you know, the, the lockdowns we had, the first one is like, I don't believe this is happening to us. I would never have thought. And then, uh, I mean, it's been one thing after another, the economic situation, the war in Ukraine, the threat of nuclear bombs. It's like, it, good grief. Who would have thought this? And, uh, and, and what's just happened with our, with our politics in the last few weeks? It's, it's, I mean, I was in Hawaii when it was all going on. And trying to explain it to Americans was just utterly impossible. You know, and it was, it was, it was just, and the whole thing, there are moments of what is going on with our world. And, and the, because of that, one of the things that's been happening is it seems like things have got nastier. Uh, our politics seem to have got a bit nastier. Um, uh, people, Andy was talking last week. I actually watched it when I was on Hawaii. I watched the live stream uh, very, very well, actually, um, on on cancel culture and how we need to be a people of forgiveness. We need to be a people of the second chance. That doesn't mean we say that, doesn't mean we say that bad behavior is okay, but we've all done bad behavior and we all need a savior. And, uh, and also, we, we need to get back to that saying, I think it was a French philosopher, I can't remember which one it was, um, said, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. And, um, and in our world, it's time for the church uh, to, even more than we have done, to march to the beat of a different drum. And uh, we are not, first of all, uh, British citizens. Uh, Americans are not, first of all, if they're Christians, American citizens, uh, or Greek citizens, or I don't know, whatever, whatever your background is. Uh, if we're Christians, if we're followers of Jesus, our first allegiance is not to the Conservative Party. It is not to the Labour Party. It is not to the Liberal Democrats or the Greens or the Watford Nationalist Party. It's not any of those. It's, if we were in America, it wouldn't be to Trump or to Biden. Our first allegiance is to the King of his kingdom, Jesus Christ. We're followers of Jesus first. And, and in a world that is increasingly falling apart, I believe, I believe it's an opportunity and a necessity that the church of Jesus uh, recognizes that we are above all citizens of another kingdom, another kingdom, and we represent that kingdom here on earth. And so, you know what? If, if, you, if you go to Holland, you get a Dutch vibe. And the Dutch vibe is a strange language, very tall people, and breakfast, lunch, and dinner is bread with processed cheese and chocolate sprinkles on it. I never understood that. If you go to Belgium, the vibe is wonderful, stunning chocolates. If you go, uh, if you go to Germany, it's, every, it's efficiency. If you go to Italy, it's laid-backness. Uh, if you go to, to France, it's, it's meat that hasn't been cooked. 
Uh, if, you go to, if you go to Cyprus, it is the best food in the whole world and most of it. If, if you're in the kingdom of God, there is a look, there is a smell, there is a sound that is unique. And that's what I want to talk about in the short time we have left this morning. And in order to begin, I want to read to you uh, from uh, John chapter 13, the first few verses. This is what John says. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. He never stopped. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. In other words, he knew who he was. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped round him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. That was code for, Pete, you're not very bright. <laughs> no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He always went too far. You know, how he ended up the leader of the first church, I will never know, but he did. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now there are certain marks of the kingdom, and I just want to mainly look at this one, and it's service. It's, it's foot washing. And Jesus says, now that you know about this. Know, now that you know about washing feet, you will be blessed if you do it. If I, your Lord and Master, did this to you, so you should do it for one another. It's a command. What does it mean? Um, years ago, in another century, when I was a youngish youth worker at St. Andrew's Chorley Wood, uh, I took the youth group away on, we called it a house party, on five days away. And uh, one of the sessions, I wanted to talk about serving, about serving servanthood. And, uh, uh, and I 
did it in the evening and the next morning we were going to do a practical demonstration. Uh, I decided that we the leaders were going to wash the young people's feet. And uh, um, I went and bought a whole load of little washing up bowls. Uh, I bought um, a special soap from the body shop and I remembered this distinct. I gave, bought a, a towel for each, for each bowl and uh, I remember I bought from the body shop peppermint foot lotion that cost a fortune. And uh, I said to the kids, Ruth, were you, do you remember it? Ruth was in my youth group then. Vaguely. Well, that, great. Great. <laughs> Thanks. And, and I, I talked about it the previous night, and it was obviously very memorable. And the, and the, next, and the next morning... Uh, I said, we're going to wash your feet. And so I said to them, we're going to wash your feet tomorrow morning. So I'm telling you now, so you make sure your feet are clean and so that you're not embarrassed and that it's not horrible for us. And then the next morning they arrived. We all sat when I had lukewarm water in the bowls and we all had a bowl each as leaders and they sat on a chair took in turns, and we took their socks off and we gently put their feet in the water and we used the soap and we washed them and then we dried them with the towel and then we put um, uh, peppermint foot lotion on their feet and then we put their socks back on and it was very tender and it was very moving and at the end when we finished I said to them that is what Jesus did for the disciples and then someone came up to me and very gently said, that was nothing like what Jesus did for the disciples. Because Jesus did not say, tomorrow morning, I'm going to wash your feet, so make sure they're clean before I do it. The context, and we don't understand it, we, we think it's just a very sweet little thing, unless we understand the context. Where they had been walking in the Judean desert, in the hot Judean countryside all day. They would have been caked in, in dirt from their, the, and it would have turned into mud because of their sweat. And some of them, I'm sure, would Peter would have trod in cow dung for sure. And, and it was the job of the lowliest servant in the household to wash feet. You know, the one that washed the feet was, was at the bottom. No one would do that. And the servants weren't there at the time. So, so all the disciples would have been sitting there thinking, someone's got to do the foot washing thing. Which one of us is going to do it? Who's the lowest of the low? And then Jesus, knowing where he had come from and knowing where he was going, knowing who he was, he took the towel and he assumed the lowliest position and he did the dirty job of washing their feet. And then he said, I want you to do the same. What is this a picture of? It's a picture of serving and it's a picture of serving one another um, in, in the mundane, in the ordinary. I don't know about you, but I find it you know, to, to do a big act of service, I don't find too, too difficult. For me, the hard bit is the little acts of service through the day. 
It's the little acts that no one notices. I am a great servant of people. I am an amazing servant of the people of God when I have an audience. And there are people to say, oh, Mike, you're such a servant of God's people. When that happens, I find it quite easy to serve. But when nobody's flipping looking, when nobody notices, it's hard. When, before I was even a youth worker at St. Andrew's Chorleywood, and I started coming to that church, I lived in Harrow, and I used to have to take the train up um, uh, every Sunday and at other times in the week because I was involved. And uh, a member of the staff, staff then, one of the, the clergy, was a guy called Chris Lane. And uh, I remember Chris saying to me, Mike, uh, we need to pray that you get somewhere in Chorley Wood to live. And I said, oh, I'd love that. This is killing me. I'd love that. And so we prayed together. And then to my utter amazement, about three days later, two ladies in the church, Shirley and Diana, um, they shared a flat and they said to me, we're going to Australia and New Zealand for three months over Christmas and the new year. Would you come and look after our flat? Would you come and live in our flat for three months? And I was amazed. And I went back to Chris and I said, you're not going to believe this. We prayed and God has answered. And Chris said, that is amazing. Isn't God good? Isn't that wonderful? So we, we, we rejoiced and we praised God together. Well, I lived there and um, then after three months they came back and I had to explain the breakages and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and then I took them out for a meal to say thank you and to one of my favorite restaurants. Uh, and, and over the meal, I, I said to them, something I've been curious about, why did you ask me? You, you don't even know me. You didn't even know me. You hardly knew me. Why did you choose me? And they said, oh, didn't you know? Chris Lane suggested your name. <laughs> he said, he said, why didn't we ask you? And what, I, what got me was not that he sorted it, but that he never told me. He never, I loved that. And that was such a lesson to me, such a lesson to serve in secret. It changes the atmosphere. Uh, when we first started the church, we had a, a drummer called Colin, who was a bit strange. Um, he still is. Uh, and uh, and um, he left after a few years to get ordained. And now he leads a church in Kent. And he and his wife, Natalie, they're, they're part of our family of churches. And I remember before Chris, before, did I just call him? Chris, no. Colin, so what's wrong with me? I'm so jet-lagged, I could say anything this morning. And before, before Colin le left, I said to him, um, uh, would you, um, uh, is there anything that you want to say that we could be doing better? And Colin said, well, um, there's lots of things that this church does pretty well. One thing I would challenge you on, uh, you've got a lot of visibility as a church. Uh, where are you investing in obscurity? And at first I thought, what the heck are you talking about? That's intellectual rubbish. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, actually, that is key. Where are we investing in a way that no one knows? 
where we don't use it as a sermon illustration, where we don't let everyone know this is how we're doing. Where am I investing in obscurity? Because that is a kingdom thing. That is a kingdom thing. When, when we do it as an act of worship for Jesus, when we do it for Jesus. And, um, and, and when that happens, the atmosphere changes. I have a friend called David. And years ago, he got, um, he got a job, I've told this story before, um, in an office. And the office was a bad version of the office TV program. When he got there, there was a lot of backbiting, a lot of nastiness. There was a lot of competitiveness. There was a lot, it was just horrible. They would gossip about each other, a bit like our pastor's meetings. And uh, no, that's a joke. That's a complete joke. Our pastor's meetings are nothing like that. And, uh, and, um, and it was horrible. And David, uh, you know, he, he prayed. He said, Lord, I, I'm going to quit. I don't, I don't want to be in this. This isn't good for my spiritual health to be in this atmosphere. And he felt, felt the Lord say to him, no, stay here and change this spiritual atmosphere. And David was like, well, how am I going to do that? But there was no reply from the Lord. So David had to think about it. And do you know what he did? He, he bought, um, there, were, there were about 10 in the office, something like that, and he bought 10 boxes of chocolates. Uh, and he got in one morning, really early, before anyone else got in, and he hid a box of chocolates on everyone's desk. One person it was in the drawer, another person it was under their filing, uh, and so on. And in order for, so that no one would guess it was him, he hid a box of chocolates on his desk. And then he left, and then he came in with everyone else. And then after a while, the first person said, hey, who, who bought me a box of chocolates? There's a box of chocolates on my desk. And the others were like, well, I wouldn't buy you a box of chocolates. Uh. And then the next person said, I found a box of chocolates. And then David said, um, oh my goodness, someone's left me a box of chocolates. And everyone received a box of chocolates, but no one knew who had given it. And the atmosphere began to change. People weren't nasty, at least for that day, because they didn't want to risk being nasty to the person that had given them a box of chocolates. And it was, he, he spiritual warfare is about living in the opposite spirit. And you break the power of a spiritual atmosphere by living in the opposite spirit. And that's servanthood. Servanthood in today's culture is living in the opposite spirit. And as we do that among us here, it, it prepares us to do that in the even harder place, which is out there. Out there with the neighbor from hell, you know? Uh, and and it's, about, it's about serving those, you know, love your enemies. Uh, um, you know, go the second mile. Uh, serve the people who are your opponents. Do that because that's how things change. That's what it means to be kingdom people. And it's about sowing seed every, oh my goodness, I've got to speed up. It's about sowing seed everywhere we go. Seeds of kindness, seeds of generosity. And, and, and generosity is linked to this whole servant-heartedness thing. 
Uh, gener generosity is in a mean world. We as the church of Jesus should be known as the most generous of people. Uh, we have, I'm going to skip a whole load of stuff, okay? We were going to look at, we're not going to go, those of you at the first service at Ephesians at all. Um, but God was doing stuff, so that was better. Uh, but again, in, in our church, we have a few sayings. And one of them is, we want to be a church where it's okay not to be okay. And what we mean by that is we're a church for broken people because we recognize that we're all broken. Uh, we all have messed up. We all will mess up in different ways. And we want to be a church where people can come out of shame and where people can know that they are loved and accepted and will not be judged. Now, we judge actions. Our other, one of our other sayings is we want to hold, and we do, to the highest moral standards that Jesus taught, okay? We're not gonna compromise on that. We hold to the highest moral standards that Jesus taught us, but we also want to live by the deepest levels of compassion that Jesus showed us towards the people who couldn't live up to the highest moral standards. You know, Jesus said, you know, not only do not commit adultery, but if you... If you, if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you're committing adultery in your heart. And then when they brought him, the woman caught in the act of adultery, you know, he refused to throw any stones at her. And he said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And we want to hold to both of those things. And that's not easy. Most churches either do the one or do the other. But the right thing is to hold to both and to say, this is, this is what our king says. For our sake, we're meant to live. And this is what we proclaim. And this is what we encourage one another to. But for when, when folk uh, mess up, as we all do in different ways, we're all sinners saved by grace. We want to show grace because that's the best way that people change. That's the best way that people grow. We want to be a church that serves our community. We want to exist for the sake of those around us. And as we do as an act of worship, uh, pe people get drawn. Now, we, we don't do it, first of all, for that, but people get drawn. And, and I just want to say this as I come into land, and I will come into land. Um, and I've been wanting to say this for flipping ages, and I'm going to say it now. One of the things that I love that has happened over the last few years in this church, and we as a leadership team love this, is how this church has become so much more multicultural and multiracial. It is a gift from God. It is how it is meant to be. It is how the church of Jesus is meant to be. Years ago, it was me and a bunch of people who looked like they'd never seen the sun in their lives. And, and now, it's all of us. And we want, we really want the, the stage to reflect the makeup of the church. But that takes a while. And we are working on that. Uh, we, want, we want this church to be... Uh, to be a church where, where 
male and female, old and young, conservative and labor, Manchester United supporters. No, I'm not going that far. Uh, I was going to say an Arsenal supporters, but you're very welcome here unless you support Arsenal. Um, and uh, there's some other great churches in Watford that you will be happy uh, if you're an Arsenal fan. But you know what I'm trying to say. It's meant to be like this. It's meant to be like this. And we rejoice in our diversity. We rejoice in the diversity of our tastes and our and our our interests, and we want to reflect that in the way that we live. God is calling us to be an alternative community. Here's the other thing I was going to say very, very quickly. Um, I have been really blessed by reading a book. It's on the bookstall um, called um, The Fervent, is it The Fervent Patience or The Fervent Endurance of the Early Church? Which is it? The Fervent Patience of the Early Church by a guy called Alan Crider, who's a Mennonite theologian. And he did, it's a bit academic, but it's brilliant. He did an academic study on uh, the early church. And um, he really went into detail. And do you know the early church for the first 350 years of its life, uh, most historians and historical theologians would say that the church grew by 40% every 10 years. 40% every 10 years for the first 350 years. And they started as a tiny sect that was persecuted. They were thrown to lions. They were not legal. They were outcasts. They had to... I have visited the catacombs just outside Rome, which is the, the tunnels that they, they dug the secret tunnels where they met to worship so that they wouldn't, they wouldn't be caught where, where the fish sign, Ichthus, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour, was their secret sign to get them into the catacombs. In that time, they grew by 40% every 10 years under persecution. And Alan Crider uh, says, what was the secret? There were a few, but... The main one was this, that they patiently endured in their suffering and their persecution. And the thing that impressed the world around them the most is the way they loved their enemies, the way they died really well, the way they blessed, they blessed the people who persecuted them. And people were mesmerized by this and they couldn't understand this. And the church in its weakness, as it chose to wash feet, to love enemies, to serve, to live in a different way to the culture. And the culture of Rome was that the powerful won, that the strongest came out on top and the church lived differently. And where things went wrong was when, the church, when Constantine became emperor and converted to Christianity, and the whole of Rome converted to Christianity, and then the church became a political institution that tried to coerce everyone to obey their rules. That's when things started to go wrong. And if that isn't a lesson for us today, I don't know what is. We are called 
to love our enemies, to serve the world around us, to patiently endure, and to witness for Jesus, and to live in the opposite spirit. That's what he calls us to. And that's what we're for. And that's the bullseye that we continue to aim for in this church. And that's, where, that's why we do a lot of the things we do.